Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, The Lord Will Provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 6, starting with verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master. Because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. 
When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. Whoever receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives only a cup of cold water to one of these little ones to drink because the little one is a disciple, amen, I say to you he will surely not lose his reward. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. It is a holiday weekend this weekend. And this, yeah, ish, right? Because a couple days is a holiday, so this is a holiday weekend. Um, and I don't need this today. And if I didn't know better, which I do, if I didn't know better, I would think that the lectionary writers gave us the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac on a Sunday that not a lot of people go to church. Um, (laughs) But I do know that. I know a little bit better than that. Uh, And we're going to talk about that today. But one of the great declarations of the Christian faith is that God is faithful. We say it over and over again. We say it in, uh, implicitly in the creeds that we say and the prayers that we pray and the songs that we sing. In fact, in fact the, the fact that we pray or sing or come to church at all is really has this underlying declaration that God is faithful. We believe that God is the faithful one, and that's true even when we are unfaithful. And yet, this declaration is tested in our lives time and time again. Is God really faithful? There are times where it seems like God is not faithful. There are some times where even if we know that God's way is the best way, we don't want to go that way. (laughs) Our Old Testament reading, of course, is incredibly challenging. And it's not just challenging for 21st century Christians. It's not just something we can read this in the 21st century and go, well, today, this is really hard for us. Christians all throughout history have thought this is super hard. Um, Jews all throughout history have thought this passage is super difficult. It's been challenging because Abraham's been asked to do the unthinkable, to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac, who is the child of the promise. This rightly makes our skin crawl. (laughs) This is Israel's God? Really? This is the one who um, is good all the way through and is true. Who would want to serve a God who asks such a thing? In fact, this is so challenging that usually what happens with commentators throughout history is we try to find a fix to this text. (laughs) How do we just fix it? How do we just make it better and make it not say really what it's saying? So, for example, Immanuel Kant, the famous philosopher, suggested we read the story negatively. So what we should do is really read it and grieve the fact that Abraham thought he heard this from God, 
but he didn't really hear this because God would never do this. God would never say this. Still, some people, when approached with questions like this passage, there's a tendency to want to distance ourselves from the Bible. So we might say, the Bible has aesthetic value for inspiration, or emotionally we're supposed to feel what Abraham feels, but it doesn't really impact our lives at all. We're modern people now. We know better. But aesthetic value alone is not what we should expect from Scripture. We should expect more than that. Surely the story of God and his people is to do something to us and through us. Somehow even the challenging texts in, scriptures, in Scripture are supposed to challenge us and shape us in some way. So if we're Christians, this is not just a story. This is our story. This is the family story. So what do we do with this? What do we make of this? When it talks about testing Abraham, the word testing in the Old Testament is not like a test in school. It's not like a pass-fail thing where, you know, we are given certain questions and we have to come up with the right answers. Testing is more like what we would say formation or spiritual discipline. It has a promised outcome. It will do us good in the end. It's usually through hardship. Testing always has hardship with it. But the goal is often to show that the one being tested, show the one being tested that they're not dependent on material things, but dependent on God alone. God has promised to bless the world through Abraham and his descendants. We've seen this several times in the story already. God chose Abraham. So God was not chosen because of his own merit or because of the circumstances, but simply by God's grace. So after that choosing, God declares to Abraham that he's been chosen. There's this circuitous journey. Abraham tries to make the promise happen on his own multiple times. And then God ultimately gives him his promised son, Isaac. So here, God is not just asking Abraham to sacrifice his son. That in and of itself is skin crawling. But he's asking him to sacrifice the promise he made to him. He's asking him to sacrifice the promise it has taken so long to get that he promised so long ago and has declared over and over again. And now he's finally got the promise and he says, now sacrifice this. He's challenging. Does Abraham trust the promise or does Abraham trust God? So obvious question, why does Abraham go along with this? Why would he possibly choose to do this? to pull a knife on his own child. And he doesn't just do it in a religious trance. This isn't just a moment of spiritual fervor. The text says he loads up the wood, he walks the road. He's no doubt thinking about this action the entire journey along the way. Now, if you're a fan of detective stories, or maybe you're just smart, you might be familiar, <laughs> yes, <laughs> you might be familiar with the principle of Occam's Razor. Occam's razor. Anybody know Occam's razor? Ish? Okay. Some simplest answer, right? The simplest solution is almost always the best. Okay. So when your favorite TV detective's trying to solve a murder, usually it's the simplest answer is what's supposed to make sense. I think this is the opposite in the Bible. <laughs> the more challenging answer is almost always preferable. Why? Because the Bible is always challenging us. It doesn't allow us to sit comfortably. The Bible's always upending our expectations, always pushing us, always speaking to us. 
So like in, in Kant's view, Abraham here is, is dumb. He's willing to just blindly obey God no matter what God supposedly says. I don't know if you've followed any of these. I've talked to some of you about this, so I know you have, but any of these religious documentaries that have been out lately? Yes, about Hillsong, about the Duggars, about the weight, weight loss one that was here in Nashville. Um, and to Kant's point, and we get this as we watch these shows, to Kant's point, obedience itself is not a virtue. So just obeying is not a virtue in and of itself. You can obey a mad person and it lead to demise. Obedience itself is not good. It's what you're obeying and who you're obeying that's important. Yet Abraham's obedience to God is rooted in what he knows about God, his relationship to God, in God's love for him and for the world. Ellen Davis is a biblical scholar. She says, Abraham has something to teach us about the life of faith because in him, and maybe except for Jesus, uniquely in him, we see a trust grown so total that there is not the slightest possibility of his own choosing against it. Davis gives, gives the example of, during the Holocaust, one of the things that was so profound was how many of the Jewish people devoutly kept their faith. In death camps, under threat of their life, they studied the Torah and the Talmud. They circumcised their babies and they celebrated their children as a gift of God, even as their death was imminent and their children had been born into the cruelest of worlds. Many walked into the ovens, the gallows, the death pits, and they did so all along blessing the name of the Lord. You can imagine the pain that they're experiencing, how easy it would be to give up faith. And we can imagine Abraham's pain. God, why are you doing this? This doesn't make any sense at all. You gave me this promise. You told me to bless the world. And this goes completely contrary to your nature. This is not you. And yet Abraham is saying, and yet it's us. I trust you. I know you. There's a depth of faith that comes from knowing God deeper than we know anything else. One metaphor is marriage. When you first get married, and then even for a long time, you have to figure out how to take competing interests and put them together. Um, when I say competing interests, I'm not being a cynic here. Um, we kind of have a myth in marriage that two people kind of just float together and they're a perfect match and there's no conflict at all. But two people are two different people. In fact, if you were the same person, one of you would not be necessary, right? So we need, to, we need two people. So there's competing interests that come together. And you learn over time to fit them together. Okay, she likes to work out three times a week, and I never did that before. Okay, he's really into Harry Potter. Like, really into it. That's kind of surprising. Okay, she really likes to garden, but he thinks it's hot and sweaty out there, and he really enjoys air conditioning. <laughs> um, she doesn't really like sports. The NBA draft is basically a holiday for him, and the TV is on all day and late into the night. That last one may, may not be hypothetical. I don't know. <laughs> but over time, those competing interests come together. 
They're not identical, but they're complementary. It's the fruit of an intimate relationship. Sometimes you may wake up and find the person who used to make fun of you for your gardening is caring for a sprout of a plant, working hard to pull weeds. Abraham and God had walked together in a relationship for about 40 years at this point. Abraham has mistrusted God all along the way at different times, especially in the early years. But they've grown intimate. They know each other. Like an old married couple, perhaps Abraham didn't even know how close he was to God until he's now following him in a way that he can't explain. Such a reading helps us to understand that Abraham is not giving up his son. Isaac was God's just as much as he was Abraham's. Isaac is the child of their covenant together. There's no such thing as life that is not life with God for Abraham. So Abraham responds to God's calling, and it's clear here in the reading with, here I am, with a sign of vulnerability. I don't get this. I don't understand this. But I understand or I I am living in this relationship of us, and I'm with you. This journey becomes a precursor to another journey. Abraham walked the road to Mount Moriah, and we think about Jesus who walked the Via Dolorosa to the cross. The way of life, the way of peace, the way of glory is also a way of sacrifice, of giving up our life in order to find it. Now, this is not an evangelistic story. (laughs) If you're an outsider looking upon the Christian story, I would say this story is not really for you. This is a story for those who know God and walk with God. Davis says, the world turns upside down for the faithful far more often than we'd like to admit. The world turns upside down for the faithful far more often than we'd like to admit. Abraham had seen God's promise fulfilled. He knew who he was before God's calling, and he knows who he is now. He knew that God gave him everything, and God gave him Isaac. And here, Abraham is called to trust God with that promise. Only someone so entrenched in God's character could take the radical trust step of trust like this. And in the end, and this is so important, God does provide. And this is always the case. Abraham prepares the sacrifice. He prepares to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Isaac asks, where's the lamb? Okay, what's going on here, dad? Of course, we can imagine that um, Isaac himself is taking a step of trust. We're not, giving any sense, we're not giving any sense here that Isaac pushes back or as when he finds out kind of what's going on or gets a sense that he fights his father on this. He trusts his dad. His dad trusts God. Abraham responds with God will provide. Abraham is trusting God is doing something beyond what he can see in the moment. The world doesn't make sense in that moment. Abraham does only what he knows to do. And in the end, I think we can say this. It's not just Abraham who's tested here. It's God who's tested. Will he provide? Father Chris Green says, Abraham knows God will let nothing, not even his own commands, keep him from fulfilling his promises. So Abraham responds not just in obedience, but in faith. There's a difference between just simple obedience and faith. 
Because faith says God's character is good and I can trust that. Abraham trusts God with Isaac's life. And I want to suggest we can live our lives today with that kind of trust. When things don't make sense, God will provide. I can't see it right now. Things don't, aren't clear at all, but he will. We live our lives in trust that the way of God may seem impossible, but it's the only way to life. And in the end, we do all trust something. We look to something. We cling to something. We define ourselves by something. Sometimes we get lulled, often we get lulled, into thinking that's not true. So sometimes we think freedom in our world (laughs) means I just kind of get to do whatever I want. So I have no outside factors that are influencing me. I just kind of get to do whatever I want. I'm autonomous. I'm only dependent on me. That's often how we define freedom in our world. And there's some truth to this. As human beings, we're often susceptible to coercion, to manipulation and oppression, and we're to push against that, right? There is a sense in which that's true. But there's no such thing as a life completely unrestrained. We're always defined by something. In fact, if we think we're driven by nothing but our urges, Paul says in the epistle reading, that's slavery. Paul shows when we chase after these other things, we actually become slaves to them. We're slaves to sin, and this will always lead to death. So if we're not slaves to sin, if we're called to something else, what is the alternative? Well, Paul says we're slaves to grace. What the heck does that mean? isn't grace like the opposite of slavery? Well, yes, but it means we're defined by what God says about us, not by what the other things say about us. In fact, Paul says we become slaves to righteousness, which leads to holiness. So in Christ, we've been made right. We've been made new. Our identity has changed. And Paul seems to believe something has happened at our baptism that when we take on a new identity, we have this baptismal identity, and that's the primary thing that defines us. So what are some of the false identities that we trust in? What are some of the things that we look to for definition in our lives? I think it's good to speak some of them today. One of them is our political identity. Christians too easily fall in the political camps of our world. I've just seen too many times on an individual level and even on the level of a congregation where people are very quick to join a culturally defined team. And our political identity gets mashed together with our Christian identity. Why? Because political platforms are often parodies of the kingdom of God. They try to give us that kingdom, that way of making things right, but there'll never be more than a parody. When those become our primary identities, we make compromises and we allow our vision of the empire to define us rather than what God says. We're also easily defined by materialism, what we have or how much we make. We seek to accumulate more and more and we just find it's empty. Our savings account or the stock market becomes our God. Dorothy Sayers once said, a society in which consumption has to be artificially stimulated in order to keep production going is a society founded on trash and waste. For such a society is a house built 
upon sand. She's saying it won't last. Sex can become an idol for us. If our life is built on our own attractiveness, how we appear to the world, we believe this gives us a kind of power or influence, and it becomes a God that needs to be appeased. Achievement and performance can become an idol. If we just earn enough, achieve enough, that becomes the goal. In the ancient world, this was the idea of fruitfulness, that you are successful, and if you're successful in a certain way, your crops will grow, you're going to have more children. That means that you're fruitful. And when we worship this idol, failure is not tolerated. Weakness is abhorred. Okay, so that's the false stuff, but what's the new way? What's the better way? Well, if we're defined by grace, if we're, as Paul says, a slave to grace, that means our lives begin to take on the shape of the kingdom of God. Jesus described this kind of life in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul spoke of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When we live in that way, we're no longer defined by our political ideology. Materialism doesn't grasp us, so we're generous and open-handed with money and resources. When we aren't obsessed with boosting our own attractiveness, we're free to support and encourage and lift up other people who might not naturally shine in our broken world. And when we aren't obsessed with performance, it's okay to embrace weakness and vulnerability, which looks really Jesus-y. The one who made himself weak and vulnerable and is made strong in the midst of weakness. Christians aren't superheroes. We're merely those who, like Abraham, believe we can trust God and only God to be faithful. Just a few words about our gospel reading today. Jesus concludes his instructions to his disciples and tells them as they go out in the world, they're going to find that there's some people that are receptive to them. They respond well to them. And for those people, there will be a reward. Jesus says that when people welcome you, they're also welcoming me. And when they welcome me, they're welcoming the one who sent me. And then he says, whoever welcomes a prophet or a righteous person will receive the, the reward of that person. Now, notice the word welcome here. I think many of us like to think we're welcoming people. You are a welcoming people. <laughs> but sometimes we can be lulled into thinking that we're welcoming, but we often are welcoming just of those who are kind of like us, who get along with, who we click with. If I can categorize you, if I can make you fit my worldview, I'll welcome you. But what about the one who proclaims the good news that's hard to hear? The one who we need to be listening to, but they're really difficult. <laughs> Jesus says that it's really only love for him that will allow people to respond with welcome in that way. So he says, when they give a cup of cold water to those bringing the good news, it's like they're giving it to Jesus himself. Why? Because hospitality is central to the kingdom of God. This is the God who gives. And when we're open-handed and generous and we welcome others, we are participating in God's kingdom. But hospitality, by the way, of the world is different. So we become suspicious towards difference. When there's somebody that's not like me, I have to do something with that. So you vote differently for me? Well, my job is to own you and destroy you, according to the way of the world. You have a different cultural background from me? Well, my job is to colonize you, to help you see the light. 
You can't help me make money? (laughs) Well, my job is to limit your influence or silence your voice. Remember, that stuff is slavery. You know that you're bound up by false identities when you feel like, I have to live that way. But the way of the kingdom says, I'm listening for what God might have to say to me through you. When we're free from false identities and bound to Christ, we're compelled to humanize the other, seeing them as God's image bearers as they are. Something happens when we love others out of love for Christ. It actually changes the world. And if you study early church history in the first century, the church was built on generous hospitality. Like people were opening up their homes to kind of serve as the headquarters and the central of the center of the early church. Hebrews 13 is explicit and it says, offer hospitality. The Last Supper is the ultimate expression of hospitality. And even in the ancient world, this was strange because the Greek and Roman views of hospitality stressed uh, reciprocal obligations. So worthiness and goodness of the recipients was emphasized. And relations were often calculated to be of a benefit. So show hospitality to other people because that's going to be good for you. That was the idea. But the way of Jesus is different. Jerome, one of the early church fathers, says that the phrase cold water, give a glass of cold water, was important because it means anybody can offer hospitality. So even if you don't have a stove or whatever they had in the ancient world, (laughs) fuel to heat up water, you can still offer cold water to your neighbor. Everybody can do it. Traditionally, one of the places known for hospitality in the Christian tradition was the Benedictine monasteries. St. Benedict expected that many different people would come to his monastery. So he placed a porter at the monastery's entrance to make sure visitors were always welcomed and greeted. It was especially important that the poor be noticed as guests. So here's what it says in the order of St. Benedict. As soon as anyone knocks, a poor man calls out. He, the porter, replies, thanks be to God or your blessing, please. Then with all the gentleness that comes from the fear of God, he provides a prompt answer with the warmth of love. Christian, uh, Christine Pohl, who's a contemporary author, she writes of Christian hospitality in the early church. She says, hospitality was most centrally to be viewed as kindness to strangers. The focus, however, was on strangers in need, the abject and lowly, Those who on the first appearance seemed to have little to offer. Ministry to them was categorically different from hospitality to illustrious guests who could further one's own position in the world. She continues and says, I want you to hear this. Our greatest temptation in recovering hospitality is that we will use it instrumentally to get something or to gain some advantage. Our version of Jesus, or our version of ambition is different because we are prone to ask what hospitality will accomplish, how it will further our plans or projects, and whether it will produce measurable results. Jesus says, when you welcome these little ones, says there is a reward, which is confusing because we go, wait. We just said we're supposed to offer hospitality without reward. We're not supposed to get anything from it. What is the reward? 
The truth is the kingdom of God itself is the reward. When the voice of the one who carries words from God is welcomed, we experience the growth and healing and liberation that comes from these words. Stanley Hauerwas says, no one follows Jesus in order to get ours. But to follow Jesus means we discover an ours that we couldn't have otherwise imagined. We are invited to take up the cross, and that's our reward. Yet that reward makes possible a life freed from the fear of death and those who use our fear of death to save us. To be saved from the salvation offered by the world surely is what it means to be made righteous. Okay, so how do we connect hospitality with what we talked about before, trust and identity? Well, it's only when we're really freed from those false identities, from those other things in which we trust and we're defined by, that we can really be open-handed, that we can really hear and see where God is at work in the world. We don't give up our lives or surrender our lives or trust in order to have influence in the world, to have a spiritual high, to have perfectly obedient children, and certainly not to lose weight. These false things promise salvation, but they're hollow. Our reward is the cross of Jesus and the life it embodies and calls us into. The freedom that we have in Christ is the freedom to let go of the false ways of life and trust in his self-giving love. The Christian faith is built on nothing else but grace. Grace leads us to do the work of untangling those false identities, untangling our political and national identities, our vocational identities, all the things we believe about ourselves that are false, let me say there's nothing wrong with political and national things, with vocational identities. They're just always secondary. They can't be what we seek. So we'll close with good news today. You have a new identity. You have a baptismal identity. And if you're here and you've not yet been baptized, this is still good news. God's love has been drawing you and you're invited to jump in. Resurrection is real and you get to be a part of it. This new identity doesn't mean life will be easy. No, it's difficult because we live in a broken world. Life is messy. We're living by the true story in a world of lies. Where I love Eugene Peterson's phrase, we are a garden, a garden of resurrection in a country of death. But in Christ, God has provided and he is always with us.